0: Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. So glad that you're here. As we continue in our Luke for, in our Luke series, um, we're going all the way from the beginning to the end. Today we're in 14, so we're making our way. It's taken a while, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. If you're if this is one of your first times here or your first time here, whether you just drove by and decided to show up or someone invited you. You're welcome. We're so excited that you're here. We know that God has something for you. God has something for each one of us. He invites us to engage with him in these moments. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into 14. Lord God, I thank you for this moment we have together, Father, to look at your word, to be challenged by you, God. God, the way you love us, Father, is, can be overwhelming, Father. and God, we just confess that sometimes we make it seem normal, Father, <laughs> that we don't stand amazed by your affection for us, Father, and the way you guide us, God. So I just pray that you bring some amazement to the room, Father, that we just lose ourselves, Father, in, in the life you're calling us into. And God, you thank you, thank you, that, that you choose us, each one of us, Father. You're calling us into something deeper, into something greater. Lord, and it's by your character, God, not because of anything we've earned. Lord, we love you. Have your way in this place, God. Speak loudly, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're gonna talk a little bit about the idea of being invited or invitation or what we invite people into or what we're invited into. And our reaction, depending on what that thing is, can be all over the place. We could be invited to something good. Like Lisa and I, probably 15 years ago, somebody invited us to go on a cruise for free and they gave us plane tickets and a free night in a hotel in Miami before we left. All of our expenses were paid. And when something's that good, I enter it with suspicion. I'll be honest. It was like, this is really cool. What are you going to ask me for when I get back? But they didn't ask for anything. It was beautiful. One of my favorite trips, actually two other couples came with us, balcony room. We've been on a couple other cruises before. My room was by the boiler, you know, it's like, if we go down, it's over because there's, I got no windows. I'm just hearing all night long. Okay. But this was a balcony and we were with our friends and it was awesome, right? What a great invitation. Right? Other invitations aren't so good. Like if I said, hey, I invite you to come help me move, right? And you're like, Ugh, <laughs> there's young people for that, right? And instead, invite me to the housewarming party. That sounds better. I'll show up to that. And some invitations are strange. You don't even know why you're getting it because you know that the person inviting you knows you're not available, right? I'm a worship leader. This is my job. I'm here. This is my big day every week. But still, family will go, it's Father's Day. We're going to have lunch or brunch at 1130 in Marietta on Sunday. Okay, y'all have fun. I can't make it. You know, why was that an invite when you knew I couldn't make it, right? And some invitations are a setup. I'll give you an example. When Lisa and I were first married, she was working for a chiropractor. Um, I went to a chiropractor when I was young, but I hadn't gone in a long time. I was picking her up for lunch, and the chiropractor saw me, and he goes, hey, let me adjust you real quick. I said, nah, I don't have any money, and it's okay. I'm just picking her up for lunch. He said, nah, come on back here, right? So three minutes later, I'm out. He's adjusted me. No x-rays or nothing, just back there. Crack me up and let me go. I'm like, okay. Week later, I go back there and he's like, hey, hey, come back here. Let me me adjust you again. I said, come on. No, I don't want to do that. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. Come on back there. Okay. So I get back there. He's doing all this stuff. He has me on my back and he's about to crack my neck. If you've been to the chiropractor, you know this feeling. You're going, relax. Don't tense up because he's about to do this thing and it's kind of freaky, right? And so I'm just like laying there and right before he does it, he goes, you know, I've been adjusting you for free. Maybe you could give me some guitar lessons. <laughs> go, oh, okay. <laughs> there was an intention. You invited me to have this thing for free, but you never meant it to be free. You meant it to cost me something. It was a bait and switch. And as we open Luke 14... We see Jesus being invited to eat with these Pharisees and these guys who study the law, these lawyers, and they, it's a setup. And as soon as Jesus walks into this invitation, okay, come eat with us, he realizes what ha- is happening. See, there's a man who has, he's afflicted with dropsy, which is what we would call edema now. He's retaining so much water under his skin, it's causing immense swelling And it's painful, and they're wondering, is he going to heal this man? Because it's the Sabbath, and the law says he shouldn't. Let's test him. Jesus walks in, sees this as a setup, looks at the people who invited him. Says, is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? And they honestly don't answer him. How did he even know this was a setup this quick? And Jesus heals the man, looks back at the people who invited him and says, wouldn't you, if your son or even your ox fell into the pit, wouldn't you reach down and immediately help them out? They have no answer. And as Jesus looks over this group, this elite group in this community, gathered together to celebrate he sees how they're vying for a position at the table because where you sat at that table mattered how important you are and he sees this gathering of the elite and says hey when you're invited don't pick the highest place of honor to sit because if the host comes and he's got to move you down You're gonna be shamed and humbled in front of everybody. But instead, sit at the lowest seat. Because then, if the host comes in and says, Hey, what are you doing? You're my honored guest. I'm gonna bring you up here. You're gonna be honored in front of everybody. It is rough getting humbled. Let me tell you a story about how I have been humbled. When I had left selling mortgages and all the other things that I thought I would do with my life, and the Lord was calling me into ministry, and I was having a good time, but I was, uh, it was slow, you know, you're starting to get people to call you to do things, and you're figuring it out, and I'd played music in church for a long time, but at that time you didn't see it, it wasn't as big and in your face as it is now. I didn't know a single artist for the songs I was playing. Not one, none of them were famous to me, but I was playing all their songs. And if you're a country singer, you want to play the Grand Old Opry, right? You're like, even if you're like, that's kind of been a long time, that's, that still feels like this great place to play. Well, as a worship leader, I wanted to play, be asked to lead this one specific camp at the FFA camp in Covington. And here's why, okay? That might sound wild, I met Jesus there at that camp. I met my wife there and I got engaged there. And so to be asked to go for this one very specific youth camp was gonna be a big deal for me. I had played a thousand times on that stage as an electric guitarist for multiple worship leaders. But now this was my job. And I was like, if I could get that gig, I would love it. That'd mean I made it somewhat in my head, right? they called me and I didn't think that was going to happen. They were calling bigger and bigger people. They called me and said, we'd like you to do this. And I was pumped, nervous, scared, but I was pumped. I get there on Monday. There's a week long camp. That night worship goes from eight o'clock until one in the morning. Okay. It was awesome. I started getting confident. I was like, yeah, they picked the right guy. That was great. We took care of business. Next day we get up and walk around, people were like, worship was awesome last night. And I'm like, it was great. Wasn't (laughs) it? It was great. I'm getting ready for the next night, right? Now um, we're talking about humility, but I do want to tell you, I'm really good at a couple of things. And one of them is sweating. (laughs) Okay, I sweat better than most. Barb Cash should be amending this right now. (laughs) Um, And so this is July in Covington. My room is is about 50 yards from the building where I'm going, okay? And so I have this image of what this worship leader thing is supposed to look like. You're supposed to be this cool guy, right? So I eat dinner and I go and I put on some jeans that are ripped up and a t-shirt that looks cool. And I think at the time... My hair was in some sort of like faux hawk sort of thing, right? I'm, I'm putting it down. I'm ready to go be the cool guy up on the stage. I walk up there. I get pretty close. It's getting close to time to worship, right? Because I don't want to be all covered in sweat by the time I get there. So I minimize my time. Go get there because there's nothing cooler than a sweaty guy. <laughs> I get close and I feel this. Whop-spot. I'm like. I look at my shoulder, and a bird has crapped on my shoulder and splashed up on the side of my face. Okay? I'm sorry if you're offended by the word crap. There's worse words. So now I've got minutes to spare to go be this cool guy. The whole thing's dependent on me getting in there. So I'm like, what do I do? I sprint back to my room. I don't have time to take a shower. Sprint, rip that shirt off, wipe down all the crap out of my hair, literally. Getting it as close to, to presentable as possible. I run back up. Now I'm sweating because I'm tired. I get to the door and there's like five to 800 kids at this camp, right? They're blocking the way in. They're all just like standing there trying to get through this door and I'm like, Dang it. So I run around them to the back of the building, up through the basement, get up to the stage, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Tune the guitar. Here we go. Okay. I have no idea what happened that night. I was so distracted, so pulled away from the moment. How in the heck am I going to focus on the Lord? And worship goes from 8 to 1 in the morning. By 1 in the morning, I have no voice Whatsoever. And the Lord says real clearly to me, do you think I need you to do this? Do you think this is dependent on you in any way? I invite you to come be a part of it, but I don't need you to do it. It's going to get done either way. I'd love for you to be a part. But if you walk up there and exalt yourself, you're not doing anyone any favors. How are you pointing towards me? And for the rest of that week, I could barely talk. And worship rolled. And if every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, that bird was a gift from God to me. That was no little bird either. I don't know what it was. I didn't see it. (laughs) But it taught me a lesson that shaped my ministry ever since then. Say, it's a blessing to be up here to lead people in his worship, but I don't have to be the one. So if you're up here, you better focus on the right things. Jesus says this in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I will take that water that's sitting right there if you don't mind. Look at all these important people at this table. Thank you, babe. Look at them all gathered, trying to vie for, I want people to think I'm important. Jesus looks at them and says, "Why don't you just invite all these people that like they're just going to invite you back? This isn't generosity sitting in this room. You're inviting the rich, your family, all of these people who are just going to show up and then go, okay, we're going to eat at my house next. It doesn't cost you anything. You're not being generous. In verse 13, he says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is what reflecting God's generosity really looks like. I'm giving away what I can't be paid back to me. As you can imagine, this room that Jesus gets invited to gets real uncomfortable real quick. And someone tries to break the silence and says, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. He's referring to the banquet of the Messiah, which is referred to many times in the Old Testament. Jesus, in hearing this, tells a parable. He says, this man, he's going to th- throw this big feast and he invites these people. And as the tradition goes, when the food was ready, you would send out people to say, it's ready. Let's go. So he sends out the servants to the people who had RSVP'd, yes, we're coming. And they all had excuses on why they wouldn't come. One says, I have bought some land and I need to see it. One said, I have bought some oxen and I need to try them out. These are crazy excuses. I bought some land and I've never seen it. How many of you have done that? How many of you would, if not all of us are farmers, Dustin Wilbanks, but how many of you would buy some oxen and not know whether they could do the job that you needed them to do? Oh, I bought them, I gotta go try them out. Jesus is giving us a reference towards our material things, the things that will keep us away from the invitation that Jesus is giving us, saying, move into this life of purpose. Well, I can't come right now because i got this stuff going on. I've got to maintain my stuff. Another excuse given is I married a wife, so I can't come. I can tell you how that marriage is going to go. I married a wife, so I'm not allowed to do stuff anymore. I can't come. Even our family, we can lift so high and put all of our priority into our family and miss the kingdom, miss the invitation to the table. So Jesus goes on to say, this man, as he gets these excuses on why he can't come, says, you know what? Let's go out, and I want you to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Let's fill up my table with whoever's in the street, all the outcasts, bring them in. And once they bring them in, they say there's still room at the table. And he says, okay, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. He's saying, the outcasts and even the non-Jews, the Gentiles, out there. Let's invite them all to the table. Everyone's invited. And if those who were invited who don't recognize what they're being pulled into, that's on them. Everyone is invited. Charles Spurgeon said this about excuses. Excuses are a curse. And when you have no excuses left, there will be hope for you easy for us to come up with excuses. We've talked a lot about busyness recently, how our busyness will keep us away from the Lord. I'll take this serious when I have time. Are we allowing these things, our material things, or even good things, like our family keeping us away from what is best? So as Jesus leaves this meal, he enters into a totally different vibe where he moves from people who are aggressive and are trying to trip him up and feel threatened by him to people who are adoring him. It's just a crowd coming around him saying, this is the guy. Let's see what he does. Have you seen what he can do? We're going to bring people. They're going to get healed. He might even feed us. It's going to be awesome. And they're all pumped and excited. And Jesus says this to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When I first read that, when I was assigned to teach this passage, I said, oh, Oh, Tim, that's why you want me to teach it. Because I get to teach this verse. It's what we call a problem passage. A lot of people go, what does he mean by that? That goes against a lot of the things, it seems to be contrary to a lot of the things that he said. He tells me to love my enemies, and here it says, hate my own father and mother. So what does he mean? Now, when you study this, I could lighten this for you. I could tell you about how in the Bible often the word hate actually means to love less. We see it in Genesis 29, if you wanna read it, okay? We have a lot of high anxiety when it comes around the word hate because inside of our culture we have hate crimes and hate speech and all of these things and it seems like the worst, vilest thing that you can approach and so when I hear Jesus say this, I cringe a little bit. And so I could soften it for you and say, he doesn't mean hate the way you mean it. And maybe that's somewhat true, but I'm gonna, I'm going to show you this with a little bit of an illustration. Okay. If I'm a Muslim living in Afghanistan in a Muslim family, and I fall in love with Jesus and I give my life to Jesus and I go to my parents and I say, I'm sorry, I need to leave the faith. Jesus has my heart. He is my authority. How do you think those parents feel about that choice? Why do you hate us? Why would you abandon us this way? It's easier to view in that lens, but this happens here too. Somebody in the first service told me, when I started coming to church and really gave my life to the Lord, my family abandoned me. She also said, they often invite me to do things on Sunday mornings as well. What is the cost of following him? And see, Jesus sees all these people who are wrapped up in their affection for him. And he says, this isn't about just healing you and making your life better and making you rich and you won't have to worry about these things. It can cost you everything and it might. It could cost you your deepest relationships you think would never be affected it may even cost you your life let me tell you in my household my sister came back from that same camp i referenced in eighth grade i hadn't been yet i was too young and she was fired up about the gospel now my whole family we went to church we were there but my sister was on fire and came in and told my parents she wasn't sure they were going to heaven Okay, Now, I'm not telling you that she was entirely wrong or right about those statements, but I will tell you that it caused a lot of conflict in my house. But ultimately, at the end of it, my parents and my whole household were much stronger believers. We were willing to pay a cost, willing to look past an offense to say, yeah, he's worth it. So Jesus is saying, by comparison your love for me. Nothing's going to compare to that. It's going to look totally different because I'm asking you to be all in. I'm asking to be the top of your priorities. To be the preeminent authority in your life. And that is going to ruffle feathers. He wants you all in. He is inviting us into a life that is meaningful and purposeful to know him so well, but at the same time, he's not going to bait and switch you like that meal. He's saying, understand there's cost here. To really follow me means to be all in, you know, it seems to me that the last 30 or 40 years, the church and its desire to become relevant to the culture has forgotten this passage. We decided to lighten some scripture, not teach some other scripture, because someone might be offended. But if Jesus is my authority, you know what he calls us to do? To love what he loves, the people in and around you. And when you skip over things and just go, no, it's fine for you to keep doing this the way you are. Even though you know the scripture says something different. Is that loving them? And I think we make this choice because we have a lack of urgency inside of us. We think we're so good at surviving. Most of us didn't wake up and go, I hope I eat today. I drove through Dunkin' Donuts and they weren't serving breakfast yet. Dang it. That's my strife. We're so good at surviving that we think we got it under control until chaos hits. And we go, oh gosh, I didn't know I was going to be called right then. You know, Lisa and I were on the beach. It was our last day at the beach in June. Like, let's just go out for a couple hours. And while we're sitting on the beach... To shorten the story somewhat, this man gets pulled out in a tide. We thought we had him saved. Ends up a wave, pulls him under, and he drowns right in front of us. His whole family right there. I had seen that same family playing in a pool that morning. Kid had caught a fish off the dock, showing dad his fish. They had no idea what was going to happen that day. In the images I saw on that day, I mean, they haunt me right now. And I wonder, what's the last thing he said to his wife? But they had no idea. It was urgent in those moments when they're dragging their lawn chairs out into the sand. But we didn't know. And so, what's the urgency? If God is my highest authority and He is my priority and I'm going to love people like I love them, I can't hold back the truth. Their eternity is way too important. How do I love them? I'm so afraid that they're going to be offended and might hurt my reputation. Eternity. Jesus promised us this was going to be the result of following me. And for some reason, I think we thought, okay, Jesus, I'm going to show you how I can navigate this different. Nobody's going to hate me. I'm going to have all sorts of friends. I got friends who are all kinds of sinners because I never have told them anything that would try to move their soul towards you. But is Jesus My ultimate priority. It's so easy. I think one of the greatest tricks that Satan can play on us is to take something that's good and make us believe it's the best. Or let us, by idolatry, make it the most important thing. Right? For men, this can be your job. And it's true. God calls you to provide and protect and lead your family. And so we look at our job and we go, look, I'm providing and I'm protecting for for them. I've given them all of this. But if I take that knob and I turn it a little too far, all of a sudden, I just lift myself up and think I'm taking care of them. And I miss, they're gone. My kids, I just was never there. And when I was home, I was so wrapped up in work, I wasn't even present to do the most important thing, which was guide them in the direction of Christ. And we have so many kids who are running households right now because we've flipped our priorities too far. Jesus wasn't our ultimate priority. Our kids become it. And this is so tricky. I just sat with a good friend in the hospital with his first kid and he was going, I just love this kid. I've seen her twice and I just love her. I'm like, yeah, you're exactly right. You do. You love her greatly. Don't let her command your household. Don't go, well, we haven't been to church for three years because I travel baseball. The coach says, my kid's really good. Right after I write him a huge check. It's so easy to turn that knob a little too far and those kids become your priority. I was so blessed to have... Two good friends who were probably scared to death for me and Lisa because we got married very young. And they were like, hey, let's do a study on marriage. And one of the things they told me in there was, hey, you want to raise your kids right? Make sure they know that your spouse is priority over them. And I didn't even know why I was agreeing to that. I didn't have kids yet. I was like, okay. Let me tell you, as a guy right now who has one kid in college and a 16-year-old who drives, I'm almost at an empty nest. I go, that was a very important lesson. Tim told me he sat all of his kids down at some point and said, I'm only in two covenants, one with God and one with your mom. You'll leave here one day. She's more important. Did she say that to you, Benji? Or he did? So if loving my wife well is the best way I can raise my kids. How do I even know how to love her well unless I go to the one who invented love, the one who is love, and I say, show me how to be a great husband. Show me how to love her well. Because otherwise, I'm just making this up and I'm probably not that good at it. So I have to keep him my authority. I got to keep these things in order or things turn on their head. And it happens simply. Following Jesus is a cost. It's not about everything working out, but it is worth it. Jesus gives these two parables. He says, who would build a tower and not think about how much it's going to cost before you start it? Do you even have the money to complete it? You'd look really foolish if you only made it halfway. And he says, what about a king going to war? Would he consider the cost, would he consider whether he even has a chance at winning or should he go in and try to barter peace? He's saying you've got to consider before you follow me what it's going to cost you. Counting the cost is realizing that following Jesus might cost you your deepest, closest relationships. And I can tell you that If that's not true for you, there's other people in this room. Because I just did this to a smaller crowd. And they said to me, multiple people, it cost me relationships. But it's worth it. It's worth it. In verse 34, therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, some translations say lost its tang. With what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. You want to be useful? You want to do what I'm calling you to do? You need to count the cost. You need to make me your highest priority. Because if not, you'll be swayed by every cultural thing that comes at you. You won't stick to truth because it's hard. It's inconvenient and difficult. Asking us to be salt and light in this world. For you to be salt, I got to be number one. And see, in this time, if you haven't heard this before, (laughs) there was no refrigeration. So how you would get meat to last a long time is you would put it in salt. It preserves and protects that meat. You know what salt also does? It blocks your ability to taste bitterness. And I learned this this week as Tim and I were talking about this. He had a snake in his basement. They said, what should I do to keep the snake out? Pour salt around your house. Salt keeps the serpents out. Is it important for you to be salty? The only way you'll do that is if the Lord is your highest priority. And as he says, what good is it? I can't even throw it on the manure pile. You know why? Because if I throw it on that manure pile and I try to make my plants grow, it'll kill them. The only thing it's good for is for me to dump on the path because it'll stop anything from growing. Because it's no longer Salty. We don't wanna be people who are out killing things. We wanna be protecting and preserving by letting God be our highest authority and the most important thing. I'm gonna close you with one of my favorite stories from the Bible. King David had a good friend, Jonathan, and Jonathan, and him worked tight. Jonathan had saved his life several times. And, and they were just close, like brothers. And Jonathan was killed in battle. And King David, in a desire to honor his fallen friend, asked, does he have any living relatives? And he said, he's got this one son who's crippled on both feet. His name is Mephibosheth. So if you're currently pregnant, looking for a name for a boy, there's lots of cool nicknames in there. It's fun. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. (laughs) Um, Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth was five years old, war came close to their village and the lady taking care of him picks him up to go run for safety and drops him and cripples both his feet and his whole life, he's an adult now. He actually has a son. He hasn't been able to walk. People have been able to have just dragging him around and things like that. And the king says, bring him to me. And now I don't know what it was like to be invited to go see the king, but I know what it's like to be invited to like the principal's office. And I think the king would be much scarier. You don't know why you're going. And so he falls prostrate in front of the king. What are you going to do? And the king says, come here, come sit and dine at my table. Your father meant so much to me. I'm going to take care of you the rest of your life. I invite you to my table, not because of who you are, but because of who your father is. This man who was crippled by a fall, like every person in this room, He's invited to the table of the king like every person in this room, not because of what you've done, not because of what you've accomplished or even who you are, but because of who your father is. He's inviting you to the table. saying, come and dine with me. Come sit right next to me. Let's enjoy each other's company. Come into life. You right now are invited to the table. How will you respond? We have excuses. I'll get this right when. I'll go all in when. Or do you just realize, like, you know what? I'm kind of bad at figuring this all out by myself. I'm tired of trying to find loopholes and ways around the way God has asked me to live and then running into chaos after chaos. Today I can surrender and walk up and sit with the king. Mephibosheth doesn't go like, I mean, that sounds good and all to hang out with you, but I'm gonna go back to my other life six days a week. But then on the seventh day, I guess I'll come and eat with you. He says, no, 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 this is better. I'm gonna come be with you. Be with the king. Can you press into what is better today? God is calling you by name. Come to the table. I know this because I read this. Everyone's invited. It wasn't the people who had it all figured out. It was exactly the opposite. The people who didn't. But God, I can place you at the highest priority. I yield my authority to you, Father. Let's run to the table. In Jesus' name, God, we pray. We come to you, God, in the name of Jesus. Would you have your way in this place? God, would you provoke us, compel us, God, to move to your table, God, where you invite us, Father. You invite us into freedom and purpose. God, you invite us to a place, God, of being part of your family, calling us children of God. We come after you today. We seek you, Father, because you have sought us first. God, and by your character, God, you, you love us, God. And we want to be people who are moving the kingdom forward with you, God. We'd humble ourselves enough to say, God, I want to be a part. And I don't know what that always looks like, but I know you're always in the room. You're always there, Father. Can I be attentive to you and not be distracted, Father, by all the things around me, God? I'm tired of making excuses. I want to move forward, God, speak loudly in this place. Let your voice, let your Holy Spirit reign here.